Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Celeste brought me water and Michael brought me water and there's a lot of hiding under here. So now I have three glasses of water. Thank you. It's my secret water. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I love this practice. Um, what keeps surprising me is how simple it is. We're just sitting and walking, and so much can come up from just sitting and walking. Um, It surprises me each time. Um, At the beginning of the retreat, I told Michael and Grant that my personal intention was to find my voice and to finish my sentences which is kind of funny on a silent retreat. (laughs) But I'm going to talk for 30 minutes. I'm 
going to talk for 30 minutes. <laughs> I timed myself. It's going to be 30 minutes. Um, and the title of this 30-minute talk is Mind Your Life. Um, and it's a line from a poem that I'm going to read um, that was read at my uncle's funeral. And I just found the complete poem online, and it's very touching. So there's a, the last line is Mind Your Life, and that's the name of this talk. So the intention for this talk is to really encourage. Um, there are a lot of people in my life who've encouraged me back onto the path when I've gone astray. Um, teachers, Dharma siblings, and also friends who don't necessarily have a practice. Um, so that's my intention, is to encourage. Yeah. So if I stray and I start talking about Oreos and it gets a little confusing, it's really just the intention is to encourage. I think I might talk about Oreos. There might be a part about Oreos. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, and the encouragement comes from a place of um, also transformation. I feel like my life transformed with this practice so much so that I moved to a Zen center for a year, um, and I fell in love with a number of priests. And then I went to Colombia to study spiritual psychology. So that might happen to you. You might move to a Zen center, fall in love with priests, and, and it's all to say for the reason that I'm... Um, um, I became obsessed with it really obsessed with practice. And then I came back to Toronto at one point, and it was after I left the Zen Center, and I didn't know, so it was before I went to Columbia, and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I wanted a career, a career option. Um, so I saw Michael, we had an interview, and I wanted him to tell me what to do with my life. I wanted him to say, you should be a doctor, or you should be a lawyer, or a dentist, or something very specific that I could then um, do. And he didn't give me any answers, actually. Um, he asked me a question, which was, whose job um, inspires you? Or who inspires you that's doing work that you really like? Um, and I said, you. And I said, I don't think there's anything more important than helping people open their hearts. And I want to do that. How do I do that? Tell me how to do that. <laughs> so, um, that's why I'm sitting at the front of this room right now. Because Grant um, and Andrea, who's not here right now, and myself are doing this mentorship because I want to learn how to open hearts. And, that's, it's not, and I'm not sitting here because I have a deeper understanding of anything or have been practicing longer. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that.
So Michael asked what the topic of my talk was going to be, and I said trust. And that came pretty spontaneously, actually. And I think it's because his trust in me scares me a lot. I don't know why he trusts me. And then also this past year, a lot has come up um, in my own relationships with trust. So one person who's very close to me lost trust in me. And so she put up very strong boundaries that I didn't understand. And so I've been working to regain that trust. And it's something that I um, am working on. Trust, trust is a big topic in my life and also in this practice. So I'll tell you a quick story about um, living, well actually I wasn't living at the Zen Center, I was living in San Francisco and I went back to the Zen Center for Rohatsu Seshin, which usually takes place at the beginning of December. I think it's to celebrate Buddha's enlightenment. And I was really excited about this Seshin, the seven-day silent retreat, but it wasn't going to be residential. So I was going to live at my house and drive at 5 o'clock in the morning, come to the Zen Center. The first three days were fine. And then a priest at one point said, while we were sitting in the Zendo, where's your mind? And when you're quiet, as you know, and Michael talks, or a teacher talks, it enters... Um, it enters us in a different way. And I, the first thought was, um, I, I was like, who is she to ask me where my mind is? <laughs> like, who is this woman? Because she wasn't a priest, uh, she wasn't a teacher, she was just a priest. And um, I think that's when I first had the recognition of um, permission with trust. I was thinking I didn't give her permission. I don't trust this person. And that's alive for me um, right now on this retreat with respect to trust. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. The and then, no, more than that, um, I decided that I'm, I was going to rebel against her. So after I left the Zen Center, I bought a lot of Oreos. <laughs> and I just went home and sat in front of YouTube and ate Oreos. <laughs> a lot of Oreos. And then the next day I didn't feel so great. But, and she didn't, she didn't even know I was eating Oreos. She didn't care what I was doing. But I was like, this, no, I'm going to show her. Um, I think that's when it was just the beginning of trust. Trust with respect to um, Zen teachers and robes and Oreos. The theme continues. Um, so about a year and a half ago, Michael gave a TED talk, and at the end, he talked about um, Enkyo Roshi's spiritual practice being Manhattan. 
And this is something that really stuck with me because I moved to Manhattan and I was wondering what she meant by that. Um, and I found out pretty quickly, actually. There were a lot of moments when I was like, oh, this is why this is spiritual practice, because the subways don't run on time, and things don't go according to plan, and, and, um, and spontaneity is required to meet each moment. So I feel like this is true for other things, not just living in Manhattan. Maybe having children, things don't go according to plan, I mean, there are a lot of other areas um, in our lives where things definitely don't go according to plan. But there are moments um, in my time living in Manhattan, and I remember, oh, this is why this is spiritual practice. And when I first moved there, um, I said to Koshin, who's a teacher I'm studying with in Manhattan, that I was doing a two-year practice period, two-year Manhattan practice period, and then I'm leaving just to see, to deepen it. Um, and in fact, it's been um, it's been a deep practice. Um, because um, I met all my ghosts. I had a lot of um, rules and ideas about food rules and ideas about activities. I wanted to do yoga, I wanted to eat organic food, I only wanted to talk to certain people. And that just wasn't possible at 157th and Broadway. It just, it just wasn't possible. The only thing that was available was Dunkin' Donuts, I mean in the immediate area. And um, no one in my neighborhood really cared about yoga. Um, most people I talk to speak Spanish and it's wonderful and I've had to learn to be adapt in this way that's helped to tear down a lot of my ideas about um, I guess my security security blankets so more than anything um, it's, New York has asked me to show up in a different way. And I think that that's what we're doing on retreat. getting acquainted with our ghosts so that we can learn how to show up in a different way. And I think this is especially true in our jobs, so bell ringing or in the kitchen or sweeping. There might be a feeling of needing to do it perfectly to get it right. Um, or, or one of my favorites um, is that we feel like we need to be on our best behavior. There's a feeling of maybe needing to follow the rules properly. Um, and this is great, 
because it shows us um, our habit patterns around it. So if the first reaction is to want to run away, if the first reaction is to want to go eat ice cream, for example, I have a story about that. <laughs> I want to tell you about eating ice cream. But the main question when you're doing the jobs, so while you're thinking, um, I want to do this perfectly or I, I, I want to be on my best behavior, the jobs are really, what am I learning about myself? What am I learning about me? Um, and, and the habit patterns around this. So, towards the end of my time at Green Gulch, I worked in the kitchen. I was chopping carrots, lots and lots of carrots. And um, I had the privilege to, be, to have access to a freezer where I stored chocolate ice cream, which I went to get in my car. In, I would drive to get chocolate ice cream during, I don't know, when people were doing something else. I would store it in the freezer, and during Kinhin, the zendo was not near the kitchen. It was in a different building. I would leave the zendo, ostensibly to go to the bathroom, go into the kitchen, take a spoon, take a scoop of chocolate ice cream in front of the open freezer, and just stand there and eat it. And then I would close it, and I would go back to the zendo. And there was a taste of chocolate in my mouth, but I, it was just never satisfying. It was like I just had to get away with it. There was just like wanting to, to, to not be in the, in the Zendo, not be in Kinhin and not be at Zen Center. Um, and then, I won't tell you what happened after that, but it's, it was just, that was how I was running away. That was how I was trying to get out of um, not, that was what was showing up for me, let's say that. Um, so it, it would have been helpful to, if someone said, what are you learning about you when you go to the freezer and you take chocolate ice cream, as opposed to feeling like I was doing something bad. So that's what I'm learning now with this teacher um, in New York, who I trust a lot. What are you learning about you? And then when I learn about, or when we learn about this habit energy, then maybe we can come from a different place. Maybe it can come. Maybe we can make decisions coming from a place of love as opposed to a place uh, from a place of habit energy. So in a way, that's the goal. That's what I've been working with now, um, to not come from a place of habit energy, but maybe maybe a place of from love, and. <clears throat> Um, another thing that this teacher in New York talks about is that we fall down seven times and we get up eight. So every time I do go to the kitchen and I get the chocolate ice cream or other examples in my life that are e equally silly, I guess, um, 
I say that, and sometimes I say it out loud. Fall down seven times and get up eight. Um, yeah. When we move from a place of love and not habit energy, we are trusting ourselves. I trust I will be there for me. I trust I will be there for me. Um, so most of the time that I need to trust that I'll be there for me is in my work um, in hospice, um, meeting people who are dying, meeting their families, and meeting the nurses. So knowing that I can be available to them to be present for whatever is needed. Um, is only possible if I can trust myself and be there for me. So it's just showing up a lot for me in my work with in hospice. Um, Uh, yeah, I can't. Words actually can't even explain the the experience. I feel like I've learned more about practice in my in my work in hospice, which I'm calling engaged Buddhism. So at the beginning of of the time when I started this, I'm part of a group who are also working in different hospices, and. When I introduced myself, I said, I want to see what this practice can look like in the real world because I don't want to sit in the zendo staring at the wall. Um, I want to see what it can look like. And, it, and it's pretty amazing what it can look like, in, um, especially in hospice settings. But Zen knows this. So Michael mentioned um, the great matter of life and death and when I so one of the one of the priests that I fell in love with at Green Gulch, I convinced him that going on a road trip from the temple from the temple to Portland would be a really good idea. And he had to ask permission from his teacher, Reb Anderson, if he could leave the temple grounds. If he could leave the temple grounds with a woman who just like drives and goes get, to get chocolate ice cream and come back, I'm sure Reb knew. I really think he was aware of everything that was happening. Um, and usually the question that Reb asks is, is that helpful? So he's not like, are you attracted to her? Do you think she has an agenda? He'll just say, like, is that helpful? Is that a helpful thing to do? So when he would ask, can I go get a hamburger in Mill Valley? Is that helpful? Is that a helpful thing to do? And he, it was just interesting to me that he had to ask permission. So Reb said yes, and we got to drive to, we got to drive to Portland. And the trip to Portland was to see one of my teachers, um, who had a, who was very, who had a big impact on me. He encouraged me a lot. Um, and we were having a ceremonial lunch. It was pretty ceremonial. Um, on the floor, ceremonial on the floor. And, 
and he asked me this question. My teacher asked me this question. So I had my not-priest boyfriend sitting next to me, <laughs> and my teacher and this other woman who has practiced with my teacher for a long time. And, at, at, and then my teacher said, well, what's the great matter? Something like this. And in my head, the first voice was life and death. And I thought that that might be the right answer, but I was too petrified to say it. So this was another example of me not trusting myself, but feeling like I did know the answer, that it's life and death. Great is the matter of life and death. Um, and, then I, and then I don't know how um, the rest of the trip I can't talk about right now. <laughs> but it was... Um, Another moment, probably, when I, wanted to, when I wanted it to come out. When it was there, it was in my mind, it was in my heart, and it didn't come out. Um, trusting myself. So maybe um, this is why um, we look so somber on retreat. Sometimes when I'm walking around I think, oh, people look very sad. And 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 it's a it's kind of somber. I mean we're thinking about life and death. It's actually a somber activity sometimes. And when my sister came to visit me at Green Gulch, she said this is somber city. She said people don't look very happy. I don't understand what people are doing here. This is ridiculous. <laughs> like I'm going into town, like I'll see you in five days. Um, and then after she said that, I, 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 it did feel like somber city. It, and it was, I bet it's somber. It's somber. It's somber. So in my work in, in hospice, um, I've become kind of preoccupied with death. I, I've been writing my term papers about death. I talk about death with my friends. I talk about death with my parents. Um, and I know a doctor in Toronto who works as a palliative care doctor. And um, it's fascinating to talk to him because of all of the people that he's meeting um, in Toronto through different, with the different cultures. So sometimes people will say, you have to drink this vodka before you come in. Or they'll say, please take your shoes off. And it's just interesting the kind of, um, the way culture plays in to his experience of being a palliative care doctor. Um, yeah, so in, in, talking about death and learning more about death and this doctor in Toronto who's very inspiring and then also um, uh, talking to my father about death and his idea is that we should have a, you should have a funeral ceremony before you die because while you're alive, people don't say very nice things about you, but after you die, people say lots of nice things about you. So he wants to have his funeral ceremony before he dies. Um, 
Yeah, we'll see what we can do about that. I don't know. So, I don't know what your experience has been when Rose says the name of the loved one who is sick or who has died for you. Um, when she says my uncle's name, Jack Corbett, um, my body fills with something. I don't know what. Um, but recognizing the dead and together, I think, is very powerful. Um, so that happens for me every night when you read his name. Um, the interesting thing about Jack is that he wanted to learn how to die. So the way he wanted to learn how to die was that he ordered books online um, while he was dying, actually. So it was a little late. <laughs> Um, but he was very, um, he was a lawyer, so it was like information, get the information, learn about it, and then, and then do something about it. Um, very practical man. Um, and this was read at his funeral. Um, Jack was cerebral, a great reader, and a stickler for rational discourse. He used to worry that he was not spiritual, saying so he didn't know what the word meant. We talked about it sometimes, so this was a good friend who was reading this at his funeral. But it was a hard subject to pursue when he was often so weak. Typical of Jack, he ordered books on the topic, but in his late-stage torpor, he didn't get to read them. Aware that we might be running out of time, I brought it up myself one day on the ride home from Baltimore. I said to him, Jack, you don't see yourself as a spiritual man. You're always the good lawyer, demanding hard evidence before deciding the case. But here is what I see. You get that you're not the center of the world you inhibit. You invest yourself in others to support their own happiness and success in life. You love deeply and allow yourself to be loved. You value kindness and cooperation over domination and acquisition. You show up, you share, you commit, and you care. Call it what you like. He nodded and said understood. That was his favorite phrase to let you know you were heard and that he would think about it later on his own. And knowing Jack, he did. As the Irish say, he was a lovely man and he graced us with his presence. Today is for the living, not the dead. Today is for us who love Jack and now mourn him as we mourn ourselves for our own frailty and futility. We wish so much for him to live. Today we once again embrace the gift of our own lives. So I love when these Dharma lessons are in like Irish Catholic funerals. <laughs> And it's also, when I'm reading this, I think that we should just go to more funerals for the Dharma. <laughs> like, it's here. It's all here. And I, Yeah, also to mention that Jack um, grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, so they grew up very poor. They were Imish, um, Irish immigrants. And 
So Reverend Ladd began the service by reading Benact, the luminous Irish poem, and, and a prayer that lifted Jack in his lowest moments. So Benact means blessing, and this is our New Year's blessing. So I'll read the poem twice. The poem was written by John O'Donohue, so he's an Irish, he was an Irish poet, and he died January 4th, 2008. And he was also um, an active environmentalist. It's also about ghosts. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the kurak, which I found out is like a canoe, the kurak of thought um, and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you. May there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Can I read it again? You can listen with your eyes closed if you want. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the crack of thought, and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you. May there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind Work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. So as we step out of 
2014. Step. We're actually going to step out of 2014. You'll see. We're going to step out of it. Um, <laughs> we're going to step out of it with all of um, whatever it was, disappointment, sorrow, pain, joy, getting what we didn't want, not getting what we want, um, and stepping into 2015. Um, I want to take the word courage. So this is what I hope for us in 2015. Um, maybe we find the courage to meet our ghosts. Maybe find the courage to say what's hard. Maybe find the courage to find stillness. Maybe find the courage to contemplate death. Maybe find the courage to mind our lives. So that's my encouragement to you, to mind your life. And as Michael says, good luck. Mind your life. Good luck. <laughs> that was 40 minutes. Mm.